1. Open up with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 26 to 31. We're on the last day of creation, and we only have one more day. But we're going to see that there's no creative acts on it. And by the time we're done, we're going to see God's assessment upon his world and everything that he made and looking at it and pronouncing it very good. And really, what we get to day six is the climax. We get to the pinnacle of creation in which he creates humanity in his image. Let us read Genesis chapter one, starting at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. You know, I've been told that my sermons at times have a lot of information and that they're kind of intellectually heavy in that sense. I do want to let you know that when it comes to the amount of information, that when we see this, the purpose is to gain and hear what God's word says. Because I want to make sure that what I'm saying isn't coming from me. And the sermon's always recorded. So even though I'm throwing a lot of you know, information at you, if you're really concerned with the information, you know, you can just listen to it later. That's, that's okay. The thing that we need to walk away from this text is really one piece of application. So even though I have a lot, lots of information thrown at you, there's only one application this morning. And it's one of the most important things you can know. It's why you're here. It's what God created you for. It's your purpose in life. Your purpose for how you are to live. What you are to do. Who you are. And the Bible talks about that concept. 
giving us our purpose as the concept of an image. Isn't it amazing that at the very end, God had created so many different things. He spoke and things popped into existence. And then all of a sudden, on the last day, we hear God talking to himself. And saying, let us create man in our image and likeness. What's in an image? You don't have to turn there now. But it might be helpful to read Daniel chapter 3. What happened in Daniel chapter 3? We had a king behaving as kings do. And in the story in Daniel chapter 3, we have King Nebuchadnezzar constructing a golden image of himself. He sets up in, the, in his kingdom... And it's at least probably the one that he's invested a lot of time and effort into and expense into is one that's in Babylon. He sets up a, the SV says, 60 foot tall by six, six, or sorry, 60 by six cubits. And so you don't have to look that up. That's 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. Image of himself. What is an image? It's the same word. Both places. An image is a carving. And it's in the likeness with Nebuchadnezzar of himself. To where you didn't have to see Nebuchadnezzar to know what he looked like. All you had to do was look at that golden image that he made. And you saw the resemblance of Nebuchadnezzar. And he made it out of gold. To tell you about himself. Really his ego his pride, that he was so valuable, that he was great because he saw himself as the greatest king on earth. What's in an image? What is the point in what God is trying to communicate by saying that he made humanity in his image? Well, maybe just the very first thing and maybe the most basic thing that we can say about it is that the invisible God has made himself visible in humanity. That's that first point. The invisible God made himself visible on the earth. It's as if God set up little statues of himself. And we, there have been historical debates about image and likeness. The image... ...and likeness are really referring to the same thing. That it's an image of God in the likeness of God. That to look at humanity in some way... ...causes us in the way that God originally made humanity... ...to bear God's own reflection. Humanity is unique in this sense... And the Bible could not be clear about it. At this time it pauses and says, God created, God created, God created, in verse 27, three different times about how God made humanity in his own image. This is never said of angels. This is never said of any other creature. What we have is something unique that God has created. There's a reason why all of creation was in service. ...to humanity. 
Who are you, O you know, what is man, O God, that you desired, as Psalm 8 says, to crown him with such magnificence? But what is it in humanity that is making the invisible God visible? Psalm, or rather, John chapter 4, verse 24 says that God is spirit. So what on earth does it mean that physical human beings are reflection of Im the image of God? And if I could re, if I was to rewrite my outline, there's really three words that I want you to pick up on. Creation, relation, and imitation. Now, when we're talking about how humanity reflects God's image, making him visible in the world, it pertains to what we are, our creation. Who we are made to relate to, our relations, and also relating to each other. And lastly, it's a calling in life. To be the image of God is something God calls us to and equips us for. And we're to imitate our heavenly Father. Creation, imitation, or relation, imitation. We'll see how many times I repeat that word. Let's look at first our creation. The fact that it's what we are. This is how most attempts at looking at the image of God has been. It's looking at humanity and saying, what is it about human beings... What is, what's unique about us that's different than the rest of creation if we're called the unique, you know, that we have this unique image of God thing about us? And what human beings have done is they've placed, they've looked at the difference between human beings and the rest of the world, and there's lots of different parts of us that you could emphasize. We create technology to rule over the world. Monkeys take sticks and stones, but they're not constructing airplanes or air conditioning. Monkeys don't live in the desert. Human beings use technology to do well, live in environments that we're not normally equipped to handle. People have looked at the, our propensity to music and making beautiful things. We don't see that happening in creation amongst any other creature. People have located it in our personality, in our self-awareness, in, um, in our intellect, our reason. But what does the text say? Verse 27 is pretty clear that he created man, or really that's the generic term, it's humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Reference point, all humanity. Male and female, he created them. He's talking here about our whole being. Our creation. Not just, it's not like we can locate, at least in the text. And it's amazing how little the Bible talks about and uses the phrase, the image of God. We'll find as we go through this what the emphasis of Scripture is, but it's everything about us. It's the whole human being 
that's in, under consideration here. And it applies to every human being. It might not have struck you as weird that the Bible paused and said that he created them male and female right in between the two times he says he created them, or after saying that he created them in his image. But in the ancient world, people believed that human beings reflected something of the gods. The difference is, is that they thought it only pertained to kings. That only kings like Pharaoh was the incarnation, the visible form of Ra, the god of the sun. That only kings had value and worth and dignity in that sense. But the Bible makes clear that when it comes to human beings, we're all equal in the terms of bearing the image of God. It's something that's not just a part of us, but it's something in reference to humanity as God originally created us in the whole. And just as I have one application, I really only have one illustration that we're going to be coming back to. Think about a car. What is a car? Is a car its engine? Its windshield? Its sunroof that seems to not work from time to time? And cause me to have to spend a lot of money on that? I, is it... Is it the seats? Is it the steering wheel? Is it the driving shaft? Is it the transmission? Isn't it the whole thing together? Isn't it the whole car that's arranged? That it, If I just bought a bunch of car parts, I wouldn't have bought a car until it's constructed, until it's arranged. It's not helpful to ask ourselves and to look and try to find which exactly part reflects God's image. Instead, it's the whole of humanity as God created them originally. And that's really key there. Because how did God create humanity originally? What's part of that creation? It's a very specific sort of relation. This is the significance of the conversation God's having with himself. Verse 26, what does God say? God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. You know, I've, I've believed for years now that, you know, God, the word God in this text is a plural word. And in Hebrew, plural words take on plural pronouns. That to say that the word God is plural, so that's why it's saying let us create God in our image. But the problem is, is while that works in the Queen's English, when the Queen says, we are not amused, rather, I guess it's the King's English now, isn't it? That in England, that works. And that actually would have been true, that use, that grammatical structure, did actually, was apparent, not in Hebrew, though, but in Aramaic later. In the book of Daniel, when you read, you see that sort of use being used. But Hebrew does not work that way. Ancient Jewish commentators, ever since they've come across this text, have said that it's very odd and don't know how to make sense of it. Why on earth does God say, let us create man 
in our image, in our likeness. They had no idea. People posited maybe God was in consultation with the angels, with the heavenly host. But one of the points of Genesis that Moses is trying to make clear is he's trying to show that God alone, by himself, made the universe and he had no partners. We're not told of the origin of angels. It doesn't seem to pertain to us. But it would be really weird if all of a sudden he started talking with the angels when he got to this point. As Christians reading the, New Test reading the New Testament, we can see exactly what's going on there. God is Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit having a relationship in the midst of the one true God from all eternity. What we're seeing here is in the construction of humanity that we bear a reflection not just to God in the abstract, but to the God who made us, the God who is three in one. In relationship is key. God did not just make male and female in his, in his image as individuals. It's not just a reference to biology, even though it is. It's also in reference to the fact of how do men and women relate? Humanity was not created as this lone individual, but we were made in relationship in two different ways. Or I guess three. Relationship with God. Read Genesis chapter 3 to see that original relationship humanity had with God. Walking and talking with God in the garden. We see this relation between male and female. So at the end of Genesis chapter 2, we see that in the institution of marriage, that man and woman become one flesh. Not reflecting God's oneness, but in a creaturely way. Not a one-to-one -one parallel. There's not multiple gods who are somehow in a marriage that makes them all one. We, we reflect God... Just as God is invisible, we have made him visible, we bear his reflections in the way that we have relationships with God, with others, and even with the submission beneath us, the animal world, the every living creature submitting to us. That's the third relationship. I kind of forgot about that one. But God created us in relationship after the pattern of the Trinity itself. In this way that we reflect, it's not just a mere reflection of some sort of different parts of God's attributes, but it might be helpful just to turn over to Genesis chapter 5. We're only reading three verses, so don't worry. I'm not going to spend too much time on this because we're going to get there eventually. Sooner rather than later, I promise. Then, as it closes out that section of scripture, it starts a new one saying, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Notice he doesn't have to repeat image and likeness because they both mean the same thing. Male and female he created them. He blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness and after his own image. In what sense do we reflect our God, 
the same way that when you look at someone, you see their parents in them. Haven't you noticed that when you talk to people and they meet your parents for the first time? They see them in you. Physically, emotionally, psychologically. We bear the resemblance of our parents. And even if we never met our parents and we run into them later in life, you know what we see? We're like, oh my goodness, that's where that came from. That's why I think this way. This is why I do this. We see the reflection in that. We see it in our creation. We see it in our relations. And we see it in the call to imitate God in our imitation. This is seen in the task. You know, if we were going to define the image of God as is defined for us in Genesis 1, well, first, we're not really given a clear definition. It's something that we have to look at all of Scripture for. But where's the point of emphasis in Genesis chapter 1? Well, it's in the task that he gives him. What task does God give to humanity? Well, first he gives them something common to the animal realm, that they are to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But to what end? Not to the same end as the animals, but to the end that they would subdue the earth. That they would have dominion over it. And he goes on to name every living creature that moves. Well, how are we reflecting our Heavenly Father? It's not just in our relations. God here, as he makes the heavens and the earth, demonstrates his sovereignty over it all. God is the King of kings and Lord of lords. God's, when he speaks, it happens. In the same way, he set up this image in the world that is to reflect his sovereignty, his kingliness made visible in the world through the dominion that they exercise. It's a task that he calls his people to. think about a car. What is a car that has all the parts, has an engine, has the transmission, it's, it turns on, but it doesn't have any seats for people. Now, I'm not talking about driverless cars, not just no driver, but no seats for any passengers whatsoever. Is that something that we can still call a car? What if it's a car that is not designed from the very beginning to have relations with human beings in them to transport them from one place to another. All three are necessary, aren't they? The fact that there's a creation, there needs to be a design and intense, uh, intent and intelligence in crafting the parts and fitting them together. There needs to have some sort of relationship. It's a technology that we use that doesn't really have a function apart from us. And that last thing is a task. The car has a job. Transporting people. And the reason why the engine works the way it does, why the seats are the way they are, is because the purpose is involved from the very beginning. 
You see, all these endowments that we've been given by our Creator, our intelligence, our music, our technological capabilities, our personality, our self-reflection, all these different things, these are the capabilities we've been given to accomplish a certain task and to relate to the God of the universe. And when we ask what is a human being apart from a relationship with God, just like a pile of parts, we're not, if we don't know the purpose in mind and we don't know the relation, what they're to relate to, what does it even mean? Is it so surprising that people who have abandoned God are confused about who they are? About how they're to live life? What is their purpose in life? And why so many people slide into feeling that their life is meaningless and without worth? Is it possible that people have been trying to define themselves and who they are apart from God? Is it really that surprising that when people go on a mission of self-discovery, whether they're a teenager or experience a midlife crisis, that when they go on this mission of self-discovery, they have no checks on it. They have no way to assess the truthfulness of the claims that they've come to after that self-discovery. And once you've cut out God from the equation, it's not even possible to come up with a right answer. Is it really that surprising? It's not just confusion either. It's also this life we are full of, we have so many different distractions. That we can follow down the rabbit trail and have our attention diverted where we don't even want to think about our meaningless lives. It's so easy to get distracted. So easy to not think and do the thing that we need to do. We need to know who we are, what we're made to do, what our purpose in life is. This is what every human being needs. This is why Augustine starts off his confessions, his autobiography, saying, Our hearts are restless until our hearts rest in you. That's the human dilemma. But the last place we really need to know, if we want to know what this creation, relation, and imitation looks like, we have to look to Christ. There's something said of him that's not said even of us. Colossians chapter 1. And well, let's, let's go ahead and turn there. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, or rather verse 15. The picture... ...is clarified by Christ. That's that blank. That's why I said it like that. The picture is clarified by Christ. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says... ...that He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn... ...and this is not... In, by ...the point there, firstborn is not order... ...but preeminence... ...of all creation... For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
What is Paul saying? He's saying, if you want to know what God looks like, God's true image, look to Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. This is true in two different ways. If Jesus was just divine, the invisible God would not be made visible. It's in Jesus' humanity that he's been made visible to us, that we can look and say, wow, that's what God looks like. But he is God. He is the one who has dominion, who has authority, who is before he was born. What we're given in Christ is really a picture, a clarification for what it means to be made in the image of God by looking at the image of God as the God-man, having human likeness just like us. And when we're told, what is, and if you think about it, what, what would it be like to walk around Jesus? What aspect of him? What part of him would you say, I see the reflections of his father? Well, John chapter 1, verse 18 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among them, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. And he says in verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the father's side. He has made him known. This is, the significance of John's words is something that we see in John chapter 10. When he says, or rather, John chapter uh, 14. It's important to write out your references. John chapter 14, Jesus says, Philip... He, Philip asked, it's in this last conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples before he's crucified and he's not, no longer going to be with them. And Philip says, before we go, we, let us just see the Father. He's been talking so much as in John chapter 10 that, he, that he's the son of God and that he doesn't do the works, that the only works he does are the works of his Father and that the Father is me in me and I am in the Father. And Philip asked him in John chapter 14, show us the Father. And Jesus says, have you known me so long? To see me is to see the Father. Jesus in a unique sense as the Son of God and Son of Man, we see in him that he is the invisible God made visible. And he does it in his creation in both the fact of really him being the uncreated and also the created after uh, in the image of humanity. We see this in the fact of Adam did not have a father in, in the genealogy in Luke chapter 3 verse 38. It goes through all of Jesus' genealogy and it ends with that he was the son of Adam who was the son of God. And that's really important because there's a parallel that the New Testament makes between two Adams. The first Adam and the last Adam. And they occur in Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. 
But I'd like to point you to first, listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 48 and 49. As the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also bear the image of the man of heaven. See, Jesus, what's being pointed out here, whether you're looking at Romans chapter 5 or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is to see that there is humanity which bears the image of Adam, our first father, and there's a new humanity being created that bears the image of Christ, who also did not have a human father. That in Adam, what have we inherited? Sin. That when we look at our humanity after the fall, the parts are all still there. We're still human beings. Our humanness, our value is not changed. We're still above the rest of the creation. We still have a specific responsibility, a call to imitate and reflect God's image. We even, Romans chapter 1 tells us that any knowledge we have, we suppress in unrighteousness, but that we do really know God. The thing is, is all the parts are there, but the relationship is broken. And we don't reflect our Father. When people look at us, if we haven't been redeemed by Christ, they don't see the image and reflection of the Heavenly Father. The New Testament emphasis is the fact that outside of Christ, we bear the image of a different father, the devil. And that's why I have those two references in there of Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4. Where does that emphasis, New Testament emphasis, fall when it comes to being the image of God? It talks in terms of, it assumes our creation. It assumes that now in Christ we've been reconciled. And then the call becomes the focus, the task. And what's the task? How do, as a human being, someone look at you and say, you look like Jesus? In what sense do we look like Jesus? In what sense do we bear the resemblance of our Heavenly Father? Whether it's in Colossians 3, verse 10, or Ephesians 4, verse 24. It's about putting away the sin that was after the image of the old man. And putting on Christ. The task of reflecting Jesus himself. Do you see what your purpose in life is? What's the purpose of our life? The purpose in our, of our life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what we were made for. We were made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Sin ruined that. We were made to enjoy fellowship with the Trinity, with God Himself, just as Adam was in the garden. But sin ruined that. We were made to reflect God's character, his attributes, reflecting the task that he gave us to do, and so much more. Everything about us. We were made to glorify God. And any time we have a question about what that is to look like, all we have to do is look to Jesus. I know that's pretty basic. 
But that's who we look to. To see what it means to be made in God's image. Think about how this reorients our whole life. Or even what the good news of the gospel is. What's Jesus' goal? Is it not to redeem humanity? Is, he not, is it not to restore them to their, religion, their original creation intent to have relationship with God? To fulfill the task of what Ephesians chapter 2 says is that before time began, God planned to save us and also that we would live a life producing good works. This is the task God has called us to. Human beings were created to know God and to love God. But now people use whatever knowledge they have to reject anything they know about God. What does it look like to reflect our Father? Isn't it to tell everyone the God who we know? To tell people that they were created to know God? That the offer of God to every single human being that they, in Christ, can have a restored relationship with God, can be transformed, have the removal not just of the guilt of sin, but also the power of sin over our lives. Human beings were, were created to reflect God's character, to live according to God's law. But haven't we moved so far trying to live after our own intuitions? And while people aren't as evil as they possibly could be, Romans 3 says there is no one righteous, no, not one. Dear Christian, does our behavior at work, at home, among our friends, do they see Jesus in us? Do they see a reflection of our heavenly Father? Do they see that calling in life? You know, that's how a lot of people are one to faith. They're one by us telling and sharing with them about the God we know. But they're also one by seeing Jesus, seeing how people function as God originally intended them. And they see the beauty in that. And they want to know the God we know. They want to know who our Father is. That's the dynamic of the Christian life. And then this applies to every job that we have. You know, this job of being a pastor is not the most important job in the world. What it, would it look like for an engineer to reflect the image of Jesus? What would it look like for a politician? Don't we want that, a politician that reflects the image of Christ, that when you look at him, you see a godly man, it's like hanging out with Jesus? What would it look like? Maybe you think, my job is too low. What would it mean for Jesus to be a, a garbage collector? This is when it's helpful to remind ourselves that Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 tells us that Jesus... When he took on humanity, he became a slave to serve others. We can use our job and see that it has value and dignity. And we should do it 
as image bearers of Christ. Reflecting excellence in our work and reflecting excellence in our character as a witness to the world. Oh, that God would be shaping and molding Christians today. The reality is, is that we would be all hopeless outside of Christ. That's the state of our nature. We're just a, punt, a piled up piece of car bits. And we can't assemble ourselves. Thanks be to God that the Holy Spirit sends his word into our lives to redeem sinners. That Jesus accomplished our redemption and he sends his spirit to make us new, to reassemble the car, to give it its purpose in life. There's nothing more fulfilling than becoming a Christian. There's no higher calling in life. There's nothing else less than we, we, what we should want for our neighbor than to reflect the image of Christ and be known by God and know and experience his salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray for those who have not experienced this grace, the grace of reflecting the image of Christ in their lives. We pray that you would ask them, or rather, Lord, that they would ask you to save them. We're told how we can be saved in Romans chapter 10. That those who believe and confess with their mouth will be saved. Lord, we just ask that you would do that in people's lives who do not know you. That you would cause their hearts to believe in Jesus Cause them to reach out knowing that you don't reject any sinner. That any sinner who asks to be saved, who believes in Jesus, receives salvation. And Lord, we also pray for those who are comfortable. Who make a profession of faith but don't have any of the evidence of God's change in their life. Lord, we pray for those who have no desire for holiness. Who have no desire to know Jesus and to grow in their knowledge of Jesus. We ask that you would not give them assurance. Not because we want them to just be uncomfortable. But because we want what's best for them. We want them to be saved. We want them to live out God's purpose for their life. And Lord, may no one be hopeless. May they see that God holds out the offer of salvation to every sinner, to every human being. That if you place your trust in Christ, you will be saved. And you will find your purpose in glorifying God and enjoying him forever. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand.